Well, jump on out there, nigga. You bad. I got something for your ass. I'm a veteran, boy. I was in World War I, the Battle of the Chateaubriand. I got mustard gas wounds all over my body. For many black soldiers returning from World War I, health care was hard to come by in the U.S. That changed in 1923, when the VA established a hospital in Tuskegee, Alabama, to treat black veterans from around the country. The facility is still in operation today, and it's celebrating its centennial this year. NPR's Debbie Elliott paid a visit to learn more. The sprawling, leafy Tuskegee VA spans more than 400 acres. It operates like a mini-city. There are outpatient medical clinics, a nursing home, a psychiatric hospital, and a mental health residential treatment program. It also has its own fire station, baseball stadium, and chapel. In the early 1920s, the nearby Tuskegee Institute, a historically black university, gave the federal government land to build what was first dedicated a century ago as the Tuskegee Old Soldiers Home. I kind of think of this as um, where, where health equity for veterans began. That's Amir Faruqi, director of the Central Alabama Veterans Health Care System, riding around its Tuskegee campus on a golf cart. Faruqi says work is underway to designate the Tuskegee VA a national historic landmark. You know, it really is a piece of history because there was no other VA built like this. It was built specifically for veterans of color, black American veterans and others who were not receiving the same quality of care or access to care following World War I that they really should have been and that they deserved. And especially this was challenging in you know, the South due to Jim Crow laws and segregation. The federal government pledged to build the Tuskegee VA after protests by black World War I veterans. There was also pressure from a larger national campaign supported by the black medical community, the NAACP, and black newspapers, says George Washington University professor Vanessa Northington-Gamble, a scholar of African-American medical history. Black soldiers were demanding care. The black medical profession was pushing for this because they needed some professional affirmation that that they could run a hospital and also that they could provide care. It opened in 1923 with 600 beds and 250 patients. But there was controversy from the start. On July 3rd, 1923, the Klan marched on Tuskegee because of this hospital. They did not want a Black-controlled hospital in the middle of Alabama. Gamble says it was all about who was going to be in charge of the federal funding that came with the establishment of a Veterans Affairs facility. Initially, local officials prevailed, and there was an all-white administration. But national pressure remained, and the federal government agreed to gradually hire black doctors and nurses. A year later, the Tuskegee VA was the first to be run by an all-black medical team. This is a time where black people fought for their health care. And they stood up to the Klan. They stood up to the federal government. Gamble says that's an important takeaway, because when many Americans hear Tuskegee, they think about a different health care story. When the federal government experimented on black men in Tuskegee, leaving them untreated for syphilis. 
She says the VA story is not one of oppression, but one where African Americans prevailed in fighting medical racism. It came at a high cost to those early leaders who faced death threats, but Gamble says eventually the Tuskegee VA became a hub for black specialists to develop their careers. It's long since integrated and now serves all manner of veterans. The campus has also provided economic opportunity for African Americans in the rural South. My name is Philip Lyman and I'm a native Tuskegeean. Lyman has been a pharmacist here for 37 years. My father worked here for 42 years as the chief pharmacist. And my mom used to work at the canteen for 20-something years. He says for as long as he can remember, the VA was central to the Tuskegee community. It's where he came to play Little League baseball and do Boy Scout activities. Lyman takes pride in the history. There was no other place. This was the place. This was Mother Tuskegee. <laughs> it's, it's something, I mean, and you, and you get to thinking about it and you're just like, how did, you know, it survive? And yeah, I mean, for a hundred years, it's been here. VA officials say the tenacity and legacy of the Tuskegee VA can serve as a lesson for eliminating health inequities today. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Tuskegee, Alabama. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. Here's a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. Cold sweating as I dwell in myself. How long has it been? They got me sitting in a state pen. I gotta get out, but that thought was thought before. We start with a prisoner release that reads a bit like a scene straight out of a Cold War movie. It seems to have taken the intervention of China, Swedish facilitators and the approval of North Korea, but now Travis King is back in US custody. Here's the American soldier who ran across the border from South Korea into the North in July. He was facing military disciplinary procedures at the time. Matthew Miller is the spokesman for the US State Department. The United States has secured the return of Private Travis Keene from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. He was transported to the border between North Korea and China, where he was met by our ambassador to the People's Republic of China, Nicholas Burns. He then boarded a State Department op-med plane and flew from Dandong, China, to Xinjiang, China, and then on from Xinjiang to Osan Air Force Base in South Korea, where he was transferred to the Department of Defense. We appreciate the professionalism of our diplomats who worked with their counterparts at the Department of Defense and coordinated with the governments of Sweden and the People's Republic of China, and we thank Sweden and the People's Republic of China for their assistance in facilitating that transfer. As we record this podcast, Travis King is now said to be on his way to the US. Pyongyang says it deported Mr King for entering the country illegally, though added that he had fled there because of poor treatment in the US Army. Michael Bristow, our Asia-Pacific editor, told me why he'd been released now. It's difficult to say because North Korea haven't told us, but they probably have got as much of a propaganda 
coup or value out of Travis King as they're ever going to have. They've already announced that they've held an investigation into why he came across the border and they said it's because of discrimination, even racial discrimination he faced within the US Army. So a pop at the United States there. They also, by giving back Travis King, get some credit from the Americans because... Remember, these are two countries without diplomatic ties. You couldn't think of a more strained relationship in the world. And yet North Korea has collaborated, handed back a U.S. soldier. So that gives them some credit with the Americans and perhaps suggests in the future that they could talk about other issues. And it's not surprising, perhaps, that this man didn't go back over the border from North Korea to the south, given that Pyongyang was only saying the day before yesterday that... The peninsula is on, on the verge of a nuclear conflagration. That's probably why they put him out the back door in China. Probably is, but also the border between North and South Korea is really heavily fortified. There's only one place where you can actually go across safely, and that's the place where he escaped through. It's a village called Panmunjom, which is a truce village, essentially, so there's no guns there, so that's how he's able to get across. China has often been the route out of North Korea for North Koreans from from everybody leaving North Korea. I went to North Korea a few years ago and you went in through Beijing. So to come through China is perhaps understandable. But again, diplomatically, the United States and China aren't in a good place at the moment. And the cooperation China's shown also indicates that perhaps there's somewhere for those two countries, the United States and China, to talk about other issues. It's so difficult, isn't it, to read the runes about where these different relationships are going. And it takes incidents like this to actually highlight that and see how convoluted it all is. What's your impression about what North Korea's long-term goal is? Just to take your first point there, the, the convoluted nature of these negotiations to get Travis King out must have been incredible and perhaps why there's been so much secrecy surrounding them up until he was actually out of the country. You're talking about three countries, North Korea, China, the United States, really at odds with each other. So to come together and arrange anything is really quite extraordinary. North Korea's long-term goal, I don't think this really changes much. I just think it was an easy way for them to, to get a win, really, to do something good for the Americans. Perhaps down the line they'll ask for something in return, keeping this in their back pocket. Michael Bristow. We're in the army now. We'll never get rich on the salary rich we get in the army now. The army is struggling to fill its ranks. Last year, it was 15,000 soldiers short. This year is better, but the Army is still expected to fall short of its recruiting goal. Two big reasons. The Army is in a war for talent, with a strong economy offering good jobs and good benefits. And COVID kept recruiters out of high schools, prime scouting locations. NPR's Tom Bowman and producer Lauren Hodges traveled to the Minnesota State Fair, where, amid those hawking corn corn dogs, fried pickles, and cheese curds, the army is trying to sell itself. Staff Sergeant Joshua Spearman grips the metal bench and eyes the crowd through his dark, wraparound sunglasses. He's a brawny soldier in a black t-shirt, his left arm covered in tattoos. There's an endless flow, families with strollers, couples with just one stuffed animals, elderly fairgoers in motorized wheelchairs. Soon, he eyes his prey, a cluster of young men. You know what's good? Eating all the fair snacks, come work it off. I'm so serious. Do the deadlift challenge. No pull-up? Nothing? Ah, 
win your girl a t-shirt, man. It's like the ultimate fair story. Behind him, a small grass lot with a few pop-up canopy tents, a pull-up bar, some weights for deadlifts, a Humvee with its door open, all designed to lure in prospects. One of the college students, Andrew Magnuson, takes the bait. He's a hulking guy with a Minnesota T-shirt and a crown of reddish curls. He nails the deadlift. Two more. 19. 20. There you go. Good job. You get yourself a T-shirt. And gets an Army T-shirt. But the Army doesn't get him. It's not for me. I know that much. I don't know. I don't like fighting. And his friends, they're not buying it either. So have you guys ever thought about the Army? Not particularly. When someone says Army, what's the first thing that pops in your head? Sergeant Robert Petteron tries his best to make it sound like something they can fit into their lives with ease. There's a part-time option where you only do the Army one week in a month, two weeks during the summer, but we'll pay for your college. But even with the financial incentives, it doesn't stick. Does that sound like something you guys would like to get a little bit more information about? Uh, I might pass for now, but we might be back around. We'll, we'll see. Okay. What about you? I'll probably pass. What they're saying is echoed in Army surveys. The Army found that many don't want to join because they fear getting wounded or killed, even though the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are long over, or they just don't want to leave home. So the Army has come up with a new marketing technique with an old slogan. Be all you can be. 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 The Army is pushing personal development and a general sense of service to the nation, like helping the victims of floods or wildfires. As right now, we're not at war with anyone. Military doesn't mean war. It's great benefits. You get health insurance, dental insurance. So you just got to sit down and explain it to the, to the younger generation. Would you ever join? I'm actually thinking about it, actually. Yeah? Yeah. The recruiter's ears perk up, and he calls over someone to take her information. Think about joining? Yeah. That would be awesome. Hey... Yes, sir. So she's thinking about joining. Oh, you're thinking about joining, huh? Yeah. Oh, how old are you? I'm 16. One senior officer tells NPR the Army is embarking on a high school blitz to find more recruits now that the pandemic is over. Still, officials expect the lagging recruiting climate will continue for some time. As a result, the Army will likely have to trim its forces and bases around the country. Not all those here are ready to join. That's because they're at least a decade away from recruiting age. A young boy works a handheld remote under the guidance of a recruiter. He maneuvers a small, tracked army robot around a series of plastic highway cones, using a monitor to simulate what it's like to control these in the field. The boy is already a pro because it's basically a video game. He'll stay with me all day. He'll be here all day. But even if you want to join the Army, you might not make the cut. A recent Pentagon study found less than one quarter of America's youth would qualify for military service without a waiver because they're overweight, have criminal records, or mental or physical health problems. So how are they trying to make up for those lost numbers? The Army is increasingly turning to those who recently arrived in the United States. The Army is also hiring more immigrant recruits, like Sergeant First Class Noella Laxon, whose family came from the Philippines. She's standing at a card table covered with brochures, lanyards, and dog tags. Most of my applicants start immigrants, because I kind of relate to them, you know, a lot of them. She'll tell them her own story to put them at ease. Also helpful that she's a woman. Majority of my applicants are females, <laughs> I tell them, like, are you going to have people tell you what you, what can you do or cannot do? 
About 16% of the Army is now female, a number that keeps edging up. Women tend to be higher quality recruits, score higher on tests, and have fewer brushes with the law. And now all ground combat jobs are open to women, so the Army is pushing that in some of its ads, including a woman spotting a target inside an Abrams tank. Nice shot. But all that leads to another hurdle to recruiting. Army surveys show some 20% of women questioned were wary of joining, saying they'll be discriminated against. Beyond that, sexual harassment and assault are still a persistent problem. Last year, the Army saw a 9% drop in reports of sexual assault, though the year earlier, there was a 26% increase in reports involving soldiers. But Lieutenant Colonel Kristen Grace, who commands all the recruiters, played that down. I've never experienced anything like that. Um, I've been fortunate, you know, not to experience anything like that. And Sergeant First Class Laxon says she never had a problem. For me personally, I've never experienced it. But it is a concern. One possible recruit, Harmony Cook, says her friends are worried about it when she talks about joining the military. They say, like, I'm going to be treated more differently from the guys or, um, like, the guys are going to be intimidating and everything and that I might not be able to stand a chance. But she wants to become a medic and get a $50,000 bonus. So far, Harmony is one of some 25 potential recruits here who have requested a formal interview. Another 750 have asked for more information. And while the Army is playing down combat to attract female recruits, that tough guy approach isn't totally going away. It just depends who's listening. Bro, you ever, you ever thought about joining them? Landon Arends is a college student from Iowa who said he's not interested in joining right now. Not at the moment. I'm, I'm in college. But Spearman reels him back in. I'm going to show you what, bro. Come back. Uh, I do. You yep. have your phone on you? Yep. Here, pull it out, man. Arends wrestles at school and is pretty set on staying there. Spearman has an answer for that. I, I wrestle at Warburg College. So. But they don't pay you to wrestle. Yeah. Pretty much student loans. That and, sucks, man. Yeah. That sucks real bad. Yeah. I wrote a $214,000 check to a high school girl last year to go to Gustavus. Unlike the college kids we heard from earlier, Arends wants to see some action on the battlefield. But when he thinks combat, he thinks the Marine Corps. Spearman brushes that aside. At three deployments with this special forces group, I've never seen a Marine out there fighting, man. Really? Yeah, they're a big force-on-force conflict type of type people, right? Yeah. Um, you want to be in the fight, man? Our Green Berets out there in the fight, our Army Rangers are out there in the fight. To seal the deal, Spearman pulls in a fellow recruiter. Right there, Captain Ellen. Um, Captain Owen is actually Ranger Tab. Um, he is Ranger qualified for the Ranger Assessment Selective Program. Um, and on top of being Ranger qualified, he's also a paratrooper, like myself, and he's an infantryman, right? So this could be your goal. In less than five minutes, Sergeant Spearman seems to have landed at least one more recruit. I got you on Instagram, bro. You got my number, man? Reach yeah. out, man. For real. All right. Let's make I'm a difference. Good. All right? All right. Take it easy, man. You guys have a good one. You too. How to flex that. Ranger tab off you real quick, sir. Tom Bowman, NPR News at the Minnesota State Fair. Black brother. Black brother to hell. A Muskogee Creek Nation court judge sided with two Creek freedmen who were denied citizenship in the tribe. We've been covering the story from the very beginning. Our 2 News anchor Naomi Kidd is live at the Greenwood Cultural Center tonight digging into that decision for us tonight. Naomi. 
Karen DeMario Solomon Simmons, who's the lead attorney in this case, is hosting a press conference here at the Greenwood Cultural Center in just a few minutes. I saw him walk in a couple of minutes ago. He tells me that this decision will reinstate the rightful citizenship for Black Creeks. This is a win for the plaintiffs, Rhonda Grayson and Jeff Kennedy. I saw them walk in too just a couple of minutes ago. But from the Freedmen I talked with today, they say this could be a step in the right direction for hundreds of others. It's been five months since Rhonda Grayson and Jeff Kennedy were in Muskogee Creek Nation District Court fighting for their citizenship into the tribe. But Wednesday, Judge Danette Mauser ruled in their favor. She said when they were denied citizenship, it was contrary to law. So she ordered the Citizenship Board of the Nation to reconsider their applications. I was just very, very pleased. Marilyn Van is the president of the Descendants of Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes Association. She's been closely following this case as her organization works to fight for the rights of freedmen. This would open the door to 30,000, 25,000 people who also uh, have a Creek Freedmen ancestor. DeMario Solomon Simmons is lead attorney on the case, saying the decision, quote, affirms that Article 2 of the Treaty of 1866 is the supreme law of the land. It gives citizenship rights to Creeks of African descent. This is a big step forward for the Creek freedmen and their rights to justice. In her ruling, the judge said, quote, the nation has urged in McGirt and that the Supreme Court agreed that the treaty is in fact intact and binding. She went on to say, to now assert that Article 2 of the treaty does not apply to the nation would be disingenuous. But Muskogee Creek Nation Attorney General Jerry Weisner still says their constitution doesn't support this. In a statement, she said in part, quote, we respect the authority of our court, but strongly disagree with Judge Mauser's deeply flawed reasoning in this matter. They plan to appeal the case to the Muskogee Creek Nation Supreme Court. When Rhonda Grayson and Jeff Kennedy walked by me just a couple of minutes ago, they had big smiles on their faces. They said they couldn't believe it. They were surprised by the ruling, but very grateful for it as well. We're going to hear from them and attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons in that news conference. I'm heading inside right now, and I'll have some information, and you'll hear from them tonight at 6. Reporting live at the Greenwood Cultural Center, I'm Naomi Kitt, 2 News, Oklahoma. North Carolina. Sarah Stevenson, who died Tuesday at 97, has shaped generations of Charlotteans with her leadership in education, politics, and civic life. WFAE's Andos Helms reports on her evolution from a desegregation activist to an elder stateswoman. In the 1960s, Stevenson's sons went to segregated schools. Their band uniforms were hand-me-downs from white schools, and Stevenson says that launched her fight for equal opportunity. She chaired the district's black PTA, then helped to merge it with the white PTA and became a leader of the consolidated group. She worked on an advisory panel that helped CMS create a plan to bus students for desegregation. And Stevenson served two terms on the school board, starting in 1980, at a time when a black woman had never held that post. Mary McRae, who would eventually chair the board more than 30 years later, says Stevenson was the first person to encourage her to run. I would consider Miss Sarah the, the person that most of us stood on the shoulders of. McRae says Stevenson was active behind the scenes, too. She was one of these people that was very involved in her neighborhood association and making sure that, you know, children went to school, got the best out of school, and went on to college. When her time in public office ended, Stevenson remained influential in local politics. 
She worked with the Black Political Caucus and founded the Tuesday Morning Breakfast Forum. The forum aimed to give a voice to residents of the historically black West Side. It became known as the place to be if you were running for local office or trying to influence public policy. When CMS hired new superintendents, the Breakfast Forum was often one of their first meet-the-community stops. Arthur Griffin, a county commissioner and former school board chair, met Stevenson when he was a student at the all-black Second Ward High, and she was the PTA chair. She was a fighter for what's right and what's decent. But she was also a peacemaker, he says, making sure everyone at the Breakfast Forum could be heard and discussions stayed focused on issues, not attacks. She just flat-out loved people. Uh, whether they were black or white or Republican or Democrat. Or, she just loved people, and I think that was a, a function of her religious background. Stevenson celebrated her 90th birthday by raising money for scholarships to send students from South Africa to Johnson C. Smith University. But arthritis and ill health eventually limited her to a care facility. Three years ago, isolated by the COVID-19 pandemic, she told her younger sister, Ellery Irwin, that her work on Earth was done. And Sarah sang that song, To God be the glory for what he has done. And she asked Irwin to share a message with her friends. Let them all know that she loved them and that she would see them in heaven. But Stevenson rebounded and got to reconnect with family and friends. About a week before Stevenson's death, Irwin was reaching out to let people know her sister would be at church and would love to see them. During that first brush with Stevenson's mortality, Steve Johnston, a friend who records Tuesday Breakfast Forum meetings, thought back to a session in June of 2016. As Stevenson closed out the meeting, it struck Johnston that she was summarizing her own life and work. I want to thank all of you for coming, and especially the young you are the future and you are the ones who are going to bring the other young ones in and we're going to continue networking. He saved that clip to post when she died. Now all of you know I'm 90 and a half and I, and I need to just rest. I, I'm just so tired. I need you all to carry on everything that we started. In less than a minute, he says, Stevenson managed to remind everyone who knew her of what they loved about her. Her love, her enthusiasm, her dedication to the forum. Okay, love you very much. Get out of this room. And yes, he says, even her bossiness. For WFAE News, I'm Ann Doss-Helms. The Tuesday Forum, which now bears Sarah Stevenson's name, will remember her at 8.30 a.m. next Tuesday at the Belmont Center. More than one million Illinois households are eligible for energy assistance to prevent shutoffs and excessive utility bills. That money is being cut by nearly a third this year to $280 million. And this might leave many of Illinois' low-income families confronting a harsh winter. WBEZ's Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports. Valerie Carroll takes a deep breath and makes the sign of the cross before talking about applying to LIHEAP, or the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. Okay, we're going to try it and see how it goes. LIHEAP is a federally funded program. 
administered by the states that helps households behind on light and gas bills catch up. Carol is applying for the first time this year. About a week ago, her gas was disconnected. My bills is going up, but my paycheck ain't going up. So how do I make that work? Carol, a lifelong Englewood resident, has been taking care of her disabled brother Michael for the past five years. Right now, she's about four months behind on rent and owes people's gas almost $1,000. But she's heard that getting assistance on time isn't easy. This past month in Englewood alone, nearly 3,000 customers received disconnection notices and another 500 plus were disconnected outright. Annually, LIHEAP funding in the state of Illinois is stressed, according to Karen Lusson, a senior attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. We've got a drop in LIHEAP funding. We've got significant rate increases pending, and we've seen a significant increase in the number of customers in need of energy assistance. During the pandemic, Congress authorized temporary funds that supercharged LIHEAP benefits. But this upcoming LIHEAP season, beginning in October, will be the first since 2021 without additional pandemic benefits. Funding could be reduced to $280 million, down from $406 million at its peak. LaToya Butler is with the Community and Economic Development Association. It's the local agency that distributes energy assistance in Cook County. These dollars just won't go as far. We're not going to be able to help as many people. Here's how LIHEAP works. It provides one-time payments directly to utility providers on behalf of low-income households at or below 200% of the federal poverty level. But the program also provides funds for home weatherization and crisis assistance. But half of the state's LIHEAP budget is dedicated to heating assistance. All of this is available regardless of immigration status. Senior citizens get first priority. Additionally, in Illinois, the state supplements federal appropriations through a surcharge that's built into utility rates on customer bills. The surcharge has remained unchanged since 1999. All told, Butler says approximately 1.4 million households in Illinois are eligible for LIHEAP assistance. Last program year, the state served about 300,000. There's more need than we're able to provide. And so there is a possibility that we will have to turn people away because of lack of funds at some point in this program year. But it's not just cold weather that low-income families need to worry about. Illinois hasn't budgeted for summer cooling assistance in years. According to the Rocky Mountain Institute's senior associate, Maria Castillo, she researches energy equity and affordability issues. She calls LIHEAP a stopgap between increasingly extreme weather and low-income households. But to make sure the program can withstand climate change, Castillo says elected officials have to go big on spending. We think of Illinois as a place of like having really cold winters, but I think with climate change and there being so much extreme heat being more likely, it really shows how these states also need to adapt. Back in Englewood, Carol agrees. Just like we suffer in the winter from the cold, people suffer in the summer from heat strokes. So yes, they need an all-year-round program, not just when it's cold. In the meantime, she's keeping an eye on the weather and plans to be among the first eligible families to apply for assistance when the application opens next week. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco, WBEZ News. And this story is part of a partnership with Grist and WBEZ. Every time, every time black people want to have a good time, some ignorant ass no, no. I take care of my kids. Wait, wait, wait. More drama connected to Shreveport City Council. Today, some supporters of recently fired council clerk 
Uh, Shanerica Flemings showed up at an administrative conference. They spoke publicly, calling the termination unlawful. KTBS 3's Madison Beam went to that meeting and has more on that, but starts with a little bit of background. Madison. Greg, on Friday, about a dozen people gathered in front of Government Plaza asking for justice for Shanerica Flemings. At the rally, they encouraged people to attend today's city council meeting to push for the council members Ursula Bowman and Gary Brooks to resign, and many showed up to share their support. I think that District B and District G leadership, I think you should resign. Brooks and Bowman both voted to fire Flemings. Before the vote, Flemings gave an eight-minute statement accusing Brooks of sexual harassment and the use of racial slurs. She also said her termination was on baseless allegations of wrongdoing, and many seemed to agree. Wait, I feel she should have gotten some type of um, review or anything of that. I don't, I don't know if that was actually did or what, but I am expressing my uh, about her firing. Some said that this is setting a bad example for the younger generation. I have two daughters, and just the thought of someone treating them that way really makes me sick. Craig Lee, who organized Friday's rally, is asking for an investigation on Brooks, and many are saying the termination is sickening. But you sit up here, you sit up here as advocates for domestic violence, and you now allow a female to tell you on record and you don't even stop to investigate anything. It is 2023 and it's hard to believe that there are indiv evil individuals who still think they can get away with this kind of savage behavior. One of the accusations is of Brooke using a racial slur, and that was brought up today at the meeting. Bowman addressed the N-word being used in a joke about a Chris Rock show. Alan Jackson said his wife was offended and that he spoke to Brooks about it, but Brooks said that conversation with Jackson never happened. I did not hear him. Um, I have stated that already. Uh, once it was brought to my attention, Councilman Brooks and I did have a conversation about it. Um, so I'm not going to state how that went down for the record, but we did have a conversation was once it was brought to my attention. In the spirit of transparency, we've never had a conversation about it, Alan. Never. Your wife mentioned it to me. You never said one word about it. Back to you, Greg. All right, Madison, thank you. Y'all niggas, and you going to be niggas forever, just like us, niggas. We have more tonight on allegations of racism on the Davenport City Council. Yeah, Alderman Tim Kelly has accused another councilman of using the N-word after a city meeting. That was back in August. Now more than a month later, Kelly says he's coming forward because nothing is being done. Today, he sat down with TV6 Investigates Matt Christensen to tell us his side of the story. Matt? Yeah, Alderman Kelly said Alderman Robbie Ortez made the comments during an informal chat in the council chambers after a meeting in August. Here's how Kelly says it happened. We were actually having a discussion on how to become better aldermen, how to come and do our job and enjoy doing our jobs. And I said, well, you guys are racially insensitive to a lot of things that go on for me and my community, so I need you to pay more attention to these things. I said the days of Archie Bunker, Archie Bunker 
Hunky and Negro is over, and then Alderman Ortez is unleashed. Well, that's hard for me, because I say, what's up, nigga? Hey, and I was just like, then I looked at my surroundings. They kind of looked at me. And I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. So no one defended you? Crickets. I sent Ortez an email today and didn't get a response. Mayor Mike Madsen told me yesterday that he'd offered to address the matter with Kelly, but that Kelly had declined. And when I asked Kelly if he declined the mayor's offer, he said he did talk to the mayor after the council meeting, but didn't feel comfortable with how the city might have handled it. Kelly said there are more to the story. He said he also reached out to the city administrator and the council's attorney. I tried to say something to... I didn't try. I did say something to Tom and Corey, and their response to me was, is we'll have a talk with them. No. So that's where they're running with the no. I don't need a one-sided conversation with an alderman. You guys need to do some form of investigation or some kind of talking besides just having a conversation with alderman Ortez. It's all part of a larger problem at City Hall, Kelly said, where some aldermen are in the know about city issues while others aren't getting information from the staffers. Now, this comes as the council removed Alderman Derek Cornett last month after he was accused of sexually harassing city staffers. Kelly said he doesn't excuse Cornett's behavior, but he does wonder why sexual harassment warrants removal from office, but saying the Edward isn't being investigated. All right, Matt, thank you. You mentioned ousted Davenport Alderman Derek Cornett. He's now looking for a temporary injunction that would prevent city leaders from removing him from office. On September 7th, council voted to remove Cornette after he was accused of harassing two female staffers, drinking before meetings, and leaving harassing voicemails for city officials. A judge will hear arguments on Cornette's injunction request a week from Thursday. City council, meanwhile, is set to vote on Cornette's replacement at their meeting tomorrow night. Mr. Doe, going on in your country right now in Vietnam is 4,000 little kids who are in quarantine camps away from their parents because of this fake scamdemic. And you come to my country and you act like one of these communist parasites, I ask you to go the f*** back to Vietnam. Lord. There's been a dangerous breakdown in civil discourse in this country. A new survey shows that local officials are experiencing increased hostility as they do their jobs. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is covering this. Hey, Odette. Hey, Ari. Tell us more about the survey. What does it show? Well, the survey asked more than 1,300 local officials um, whether in the last three months they had experienced insults, harassment, threats, or even attacks in doing their job. Um, so think Ari mayors, uh, city council members, and people on county governing boards. Uh, and what the survey found is that we continue to be at an elevated baseline for those kinds of hostile interactions. Um, nearly half of the respondents had been insulted within the previous three months. A third had been harassed. And nearly one in five had been threatened. And if you break it down further, you find that those numbers are actually even higher uh, when we're talking about local officials who are women or racial or ethnic minorities. Um, and interestingly, you know, this is actually happening in all kinds of places, small places, big big towns and big cities, it tends to be more common in the more populous locations. And uh, these types of events were experienced by Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Can you give us some context, like how bad has this harassment and hostility gotten? Well, for some local officials, um, it's actually gotten to the point where they don't feel physically safe in their communities. 
Um, I spoke with Shannon Hiller of the Nonpartisan Bridging Divides Initiative about this. Um, that's housed at Princeton University. And she says that the hostility toward racial and ethnic minorities in particular is often accompanied by dehumanizing language. I think sometimes it can be easy to dismiss that just as words, but you have those same officials saying, I don't shop at the grocery store in my home. I'm telling my daughter to go out of state to school, um, you know, that kind of real change in their behavior and their feeling of safety in their community. Ari, um, Hiller's group worked with the nonprofit survey group Civic Pulse on this research, and they've been doing these surveys quarterly over the past year. Uh, And in interviews with survey respondents, she said that this feeling of elevated and pervasive hostility is fairly new um, in that it really started just during the last three years during the pandemic, and it hasn't decreased since then. What sorts of grievances are behind these incidents of hostility? Hiller says that respondents have shared that the issues have mostly been related to local matters like um, housing, utilities, and zoning. And that's interesting because it adds to the reporting that we heard earlier today from our colleague Miles Parks, uh, where he looked at high turnover among local election officials. You know, we're seeing that now because of um, increased threats. And it appears to be distinct from threats also that are happening on hot button issues like LGBTQ and abortion rights. I think what's most troubling is that many who responded to the survey said that they believe that the most severe of these threats, uh, so the harassment and even attacks, will only increase the closer that we get to the election. Just briefly, any suggestions for reducing the temperature? Yeah, Hiller's group is looking into that, and she says it's key to help um, your local officials feel less isolated when this kind of um, hostility occurs. So um, public supports of statement, uh, public statements of support for them, or even chalk messages outside their offices with encouraging words. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef, thank you. For generalities, I generally say that if you want uh, ultimate expression, of white supremacy and the white supremacist mentality and you want to put it in the form of one person that I would name and that's something I very seldom do it would be Jeffrey Dahmer Hmm. he's the ultimate expression of white supremacy everything that he was doing working in a chocolate factory the whole nine yards Storing black males' bodies in canisters of lye and alcohol and whatnot, and got them in the refrigerator and cannibalism and all of that, and calm, very methodical. Even when questioned by the law enforcement officers, very calm. Hannibal Lecter. Ultimate. Harry, I'm looking. Wasn't he with young boys too? Yeah, he was. I mean, I, I forgot how many bodies is. You know what? You know, something like twenty or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can probably look it up on the computer. Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't even try to protect him once he went to prison. He was so embarrassing to everybody. I guess. I mean, you know, everybody who really thinks like he does. They warned him out of the way. The black guy killed him in prison. Mm. 
Right. I remember that. Yeah. See, and I think he was set up to be dead because, you know, he was considered a monster. So he's just as calm as he can be. You know, very methodical, very meticulous, went to work on time, excellent worker, working in a chocolate factory, looking at chocolate being churned all day. And out there trying to churn chocolate at night. Mm. The ultimate expression. Roman Empire. Black death associated black uh, 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 anti-sex with non-white people associated ultimately with death. Earlier this year, we brought you the story of Talib al-Majli, who was detained at the notorious Abu Ghraib prison. He detailed the abuse he says he suffered at the hands of U.S. troops there after the invasion of Iraq. Now, some 20 years after the allegations and images of widespread torture and abuse in Abu Ghraib were first made public, a further investigation by Human Rights Watch, following NPR's report, could find no evidence that the U.S. government has compensated or even offered to help victims. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has this report. The images of detainees naked and leashed like dogs and forced into other degrading positions by U.S. soldiers shocked the American public and harmed America's reputation around the world. But in all the furore that followed, it seems the actual victims of the abuse at Abu Ghraib were forgotten. In March, from his home in a Baghdad slum, a former detainee, Talib al-Majli, told us of his experiences. They torturing us. They making us naked. Sometimes they throw that sound grenades on in our cells. And sometimes they use the shotguns and they kill two of prisoners. And they use the, these dogs to terrifying us. They, they flooded our cells with, with water. Majli says he was one of the men forced into a grotesque human pyramid of naked detainees and photographed as U.S. soldiers posed beside them. These experiences have left him traumatized. He bites at his skin still, a nervous tick. He's barely able to work. For years, he searched for compensation from the U.S. When the photos showing the abuse of detainees were published in 2004, then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld told Congress compensating the victims was, quote, the right thing to do. But as Sarah Sunbar from Human Rights Watch says, the right thing wasn't done. Apparently, the U.S. government hasn't paid any compensation or other forms of redress. This was their finding after months spent examining government documents following NPR's report on Majli. Sanbar says the Department of Defense didn't respond to their repeated inquiries. So what does this mean for the victims? There's still no way that survivors can have their cases heard. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Rome. The city, these people, <laughs> making the rest of us feel like we don't belong. But they know better than us. Look at how they treat their children. Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one.
Some survivors tell us that while financial settlements pale in comparison to finally holding their abusers and the systems that protected them to account, they see the church's move as an effort to subvert the law and are bracing for that justice to be taken away. I was in high school, Archbishop Keogh High School, and I was abused by Father Maskell there. Teresa Lancaster says the sexual abuse she endured at her Baltimore High School began as a junior in 1970, continuing until she graduated in 1972. She still lives with it every day. I have three daughters, and every one of them has told me there were times when they just didn't understand what was wrong with mom. I mean, the depression and the anxiety rears its ugly head. What happened to Lancaster and other girls at Archbishop Keogh High School at the hands of Father Joseph Maskell was explored in the seven-part Netflix series in 2017. And then there's the world beneath. The church initially tried to discredit the series. Then last spring, Maryland Attorney General Anthony Brown released a report detailing how more than 150 Catholic priests and other Maryland clergy sexually abused more than 600 children and were never held accountable. When the uh, Attorney General report was released, they knew about Father Maskell in 1966. The report states Maskell was accused of abusing at least 39 boys and girls. But despite the church knowing about these allegations for nearly 30 years, he was repeatedly reassigned until he was placed on leave in 1994. He died in 2001. Though he was never criminally charged, the church added him to its list of priests who had been credibly accused of abuse after his death. I was abused in 1970. They could have stopped it. Teresa sued the archdiocese in 1995, but... But we were blocked by the statute of limitations. For 21 years, Teresa fought alongside others for the state to change the law preventing child abuse victims from seeking justice decades later. Last session, lawmakers passed the Maryland Child Victims Act of 2023. We won, finally. It allows for individual victims to sue governmental entities for up to $890,000 and private institutions like the church for up to $1.5 million. But Teresa says that's not just what this is about. I just want to hear, I'm sorry, and I, I won't let this happen to anyone else. The Archdiocese of Baltimore wouldn't talk to us on camera, but pointed us to this September 5th statement from Archbishop William E. Lurie, who said the church is considering filing for bankruptcy ahead of possible litigation, saying with the passage of the new law, there is a high likelihood that the archdiocese will face multiple lawsuits. Litigating them individually would potentially lead to some very high damage awards for a very small number of victim survivors, while leaving almost nothing for the vast majority of them. The archdiocese simply does not have unlimited resources to satisfy such claims. When you heard that the archdiocese may consider Chapter 11, what were your thoughts? My personal opinion is that that would rep represent the height of hypocrisy, in my view. is unthinkable to me. Attorney Jonathan Shakur is working with Teresa, also an attorney, to file a class action lawsuit on behalf of several church sex abuse victims on Monday. We can't undo the sexual abuse. We can only get full, fair, and adequate compensation and help, the, help them heal and support them. You, you don't move on. You learn to live with it. David Lawrence is a survivor of abuse and heads the Maryland chapter of the Survivors Network of those abused by priests. He also fought for the law to change and says filing Chapter 11 would impose a new deadline on victims to come forward if they want to be named as creditors and could prevent many victim stories 
and the names of their abusers from coming to light. That's the terrifying part of coming forward, is you believe you're alone. You believe you're the only one. You believe that no one will believe what you say. And if you see that name in print, it, it helps you get, have the courage to come forward, and then your healing can start. We asked the Archdiocese about these concerns, and a spokesperson with the church told us bankruptcy would be a reasonable and equitable method of compensation. Anyone interested in filing a claim should first file a report with the police, also file a claim with the Maryland Attorney General's office, and consider contacting an attorney with experience in these cases. It's important to remember that the abuse needed to happen in Maryland, but you don't have to be a resident of Maryland to file a claim. I'm Tracy Wilkins, News 4 I Team. Meanwhile, survivors and advocates, including David Lorenz, who you saw in Tracy's report, held a news conference today in Baltimore. The group called out Archbishop William Lorry for refusing to reveal the names of clergy and church officials who are still secret. Is that a real gun? Yeah, yes, this is a real gun. Do you kill people? No, if some guy's hurting someone, I try to shoot him in the leg or something just to stop him. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? This fall, a number of police officers are on trial, accused of killing people in the line of duty. Three in Colorado, another three in Washington state, and more trials are looming as five officers in Memphis have been charged with second-degree murder for the beating death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. For years, the Black Lives Matter movement demanded that more police be prosecuted after such deaths. And, as NPR's Martin Costi reports, some think that may now be happening. Elaine Simons believes things are changing. In 2019, a former foster child of hers, a young man named Jesse Saray, was shot to death in a struggle with a police officer in Auburn, Washington. At first, she says the criminal justice system responded slowly. It wasn't until the murder of George Floyd in 2020 that it became a catalyst. Something woke up the world. After George Floyd, the officer who shot Simon's foster son was charged with second-degree murder and assault. Simon's is waiting for the trial to start, probably early next year. It does something to your spirit, you know? We want resolution. In the meantime, she's planning to watch the trial of three other cops charged with murder or manslaughter in an unrelated death in nearby Tacoma. She also stays in touch with families of other people killed by police. She just came back from New York, where she met the mother of Eric Garner, his death in 2014 sparked protests, especially when the officer who wrestled him to the ground was not criminally charged. Now, Simon says families like Garner's are seeing what she calls a glimmer of hope. Because they're starting to see in different states, charges are starting to go forward, and that resolution is starting to look like almost a reality for a lot of people. But if you look at national numbers, it's not clear that things have changed that much. Criminologist Philip Stinson has been counting the number of state and local officers charged with murder or manslaughter for on-duty shootings every year since 2005. Well, it certainly it goes up after about 2014, but it's just a few cases. We go from maybe 8 or 9 or 15 to 15 or 20 instead. In other words, the number of cops charged for shooting deaths has gone from single digits a decade ago to low double digits now. 
And in the years where we have seen increases in terms of the numbers of officers charged, what we have noticed is that quite often that's a result of several officers being charged out of the same criminal incident. So it makes it look like there's more going on there. Instead of counting how many cops have been charged, you could count deaths and see how many of those lead to charges. That's how the Mapping Police Violence Project does it. The founder is Samuel Sinyangwe. He says the percentage of deaths that lead to criminal charges has been holding steady, between 1% and 3%. Though there may be some lag time in his stats. There are cases where prosecutors will charge an officer you know, many months or even a year after the case. And so you know, the numbers for more recent years might go up slightly. One reason to think that the numbers might go up is that in some places the laws have changed. Washington State, for instance, lowered the bar for convicting an officer. It's no longer necessary to prove, quote, actual malice. California tightened the rules for when cops may use deadly force. And Colorado made it a crime for an officer to fail to intervene when another one uses excessive force. The threshold, I think, for charging an officer has most definitely changed over the last four or five years. Ted Buck is an attorney who defends police in civil actions in Washington State. He doesn't do many criminal cases for police because he says those are still relatively rare. And he doesn't expect criminal prosecutions to increase much either, despite that lower legal threshold. In part, he says this is because of all the video evidence that we have now. Yes, it's true, he says, that video sometimes makes the case against an officer. But that same huge amount of evidence that is now available through video footage is also being looked at in all these other cases. And it's leading prosecutors to decide not to charge. And Buck thinks that's as it should be. Both he and criminologist Philip Stinson agree that the prosecution numbers are basically static right now. But while Buck believes that's because most police do the right thing, Stinson sees it as evidence that prosecutors are still hesitant to go after cops and that juries are still reluctant to convict them. Martin Costi, NPR News. Represent Philadelphia, you know what I mean? Breaking news to get to tonight. Video showing people breaking into stores right in Center City, Philadelphia. Officers saying these people were not part of the protesters who were upset following a judge's dismissal of all charges against former Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial. Yeah, people can be seen carrying arms full of merchandise after breaking into this footlocker on Chestnut Street. Monday night, I'm Gray Hall with Shari Williams. Uh, the big story tonight on Action News is breaking news of reports of looting tonight on the streets of Philadelphia. Well, this does come hours after city officials called for calm following charges being dismissed against Officer Mark Dial in the shooting death of Eddie Irizarry. Action News is Christy Aletto joining us here live now in Center City with more. And Christy, police stressing that those we're seeing doing these acts, not necessarily a part of the protest from earlier. And that's right, Charlie. And I want to set the scene here on Walnut Street because it pretty much looks like a labyrinth of yellow crime scene tape. Now, from what we can see, it looks like 15th Street all the way to 18th Street have been blocked off. And within the confines of those blocks are stores like the Apple Store that were hit by looters. Now, like you mentioned, police say that they don't believe the individuals responsible are tied to that peaceful protest from earlier. I did speak to Commissioner Stanford by phone, and he says that the individuals that have been detained range from 
teens to young adults, and they have even recovered one weapon. They're still processing a lot of the people that have been detained, but they don't believe that they were tied to that protest, that they were just, in fact, trying to take advantage of what was happening at City Hall. But again, I want to go to some video because they targeted a lot of stores here in both Center City and Rittenhouse. This is the Foot Locker along Chestnut Street, and you can see crowds of people running in and out of the stores, carrying merchandise, clothes, shoes, all weaving in and out of tra traffic on Chestnut Street. And then we even spoke to a witness who was in Rittenhouse. I'm going to go to this video because this is video outside of the Lululemon store on Walnut. A witness says that she and her friends were sitting across the street at A Bar at 18th and Walnut when they suddenly saw a crowd of teens swarm the doors and then began looting the store. I saw a bunch of people like just go into the lemon, clothes everywhere. What was running through your mind? Um, <laughs> I'm sitting by a window. I'm just gonna like look the other way. This is yeah, <laughs> it's kind of scary. Yeah. The Apple Store looks pretty cleaned out. Really? Yeah, except for like computer monitors, but like all the Apple Watches, iPhones look pretty. What do you make of that when you see all of this happening? I mean, well, we watched like the Lululemon thing happened and that was concerning just because it looked like a lot of people got arrested at first but they kind of let everybody go wow. okay. so I mean I would say like 30 plus people around the opposite direction away from the scene and then everything died down yeah. Again, this is a live look at the Apple Store where um, police investigators are still trying to process this scene. They have multiple scenes that they're at. Again, the Lululemon Store, the Foot Locker, we also heard about a Nordstrom Rack. Again, I did speak with Commissioner Stanford. He said that they do not believe that these individuals that were behind the looting are tied to the protests that happened at City Hall, that they were just trying to take advantage of that situation. They are still trying to process all of the people that they have detained, and that is going to take some time, so we won't even have a real number of how many people were taken into custody or being processed until probably tomorrow morning. They also did recover a weapon, um, but we will have more information on that um, as we continue to follow this developing story. Live here in Rittenhouse, Christy Oletto for Action News at 10 on PHL 17. Grain Shari? Yeah, images we really don't want to have yeah. to report on, and it looks just like a lot of bad behavior. Okay, Christy, thanks. Uh, I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the back seat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And then seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and, and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. Very angry. A student at Babcock Ranch High School says this video is proof she's the victim of racial attacks by her classmates and teachers. Now she says it went beyond bullying. Students involved in the attacks posted the video to social media. It's your big story tonight at 7. Thanks so much for joining us here on ABC7. I'm Jeff Harris. And I'm Megan Miller. She says the attackers also posted this picture online of her picking cotton. Now the NAACP is calling for swift action against the school's principal. 
ABC7's Dave Elias sat down with the victim and her family. He gets you more on what the school plans to do about this. Well, as you're about to see in this report, 16-year-old Grace Clay says that she's been bullied by her teammates and classmates, oftentimes writing derogatory uh, words on the whiteboard. She's been hit with pillows called the N-word, and she's been told to go pick cotton. They started making comments and stuff, like racism, get the black one, she hasn't picked her cotton. Grace Clay is describing the pillow beating she took from volleyball teammates who belittled her during an away game inside a hotel room and then posted the video to social media. And they blocked the door, so I kind of just backed up, and then they were getting pillows and they were hitting me. So I just put my hands up, went to a corner, and just, just took it. The incident reported to her coach. The taunts didn't stop there. This meme posted to social media on her birthday shows Grace picking cotton. And I see that, and I was horrified. I mean, it's my birthday. I'm supposed to be happy, but that's the first thing I'm waking up to. Another post to social media shows students in class playing hangman on the whiteboard using the N-word. Her mother sickened by it all. I felt so sorry for her because... There was nothing that I could have done to prevent this. The NAACP now getting involved. There needs to be some severe consequence for the principal, for the teacher, for the coaches, everybody. There, there needs to be some consequence. Shannon Treese is the executive director of Babcock School. She calls the language used by the students racially inappropriate. <laughs> saying the school can't discuss any discipline that was taken against students, but makes no mention of discipline against teachers, coaches, or the principal. We call for the termination of that principal. And that's what we'll be pursuing as we file this civil rights complaint and get behind this. In Lee County, Dave Elias, ABC7. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation... Uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Welcome to the News at 6. I'm Morgan Romero. We begin with a racist photo that surfaced today from Salmon High School. The Salmon School District superintendent says they took disciplinary action after a photo involving a group of Salmon High School students was posted on social media. It shows six students with a racial slur spelled out on their shirts, standing behind a girl laying in front of them. We blurred out their faces and any profanity. All the students are flipping off the camera. Superintendent Troy Easterday says the school district became aware of the post early this morning and consulted with his administrative team and law enforcement. Easterday says the photo was not, quote, posted maliciously, but the district took all the necessary legal steps to make sure the students faced repercussions. The Salmon School District has not or does not ever condone 
what was posted on social media today. Yesterday did not specify what type of discipline the students got, but several concerned parents did email KTVB about the photo, which has since been deleted. The parents said this is not the first time something like this has happened at the school. Yesterday says since he's been superintendent, no other incidents like this have been brought to his attention that were not taken seriously. Machiavellian is Illuminati all through your body. The blows like a 12 gauge shot it. And God said he should send his one begotten son to lead the wild into the ways of the man. Follow me. Eat my flesh, flesh of my flesh. Come with me. Hail Mary, run quick, see. What do we have here Breaking news just into CNN. Las Vegas police have arrested a suspect in connection with the 1996 drive-by shooting death of legendary rapper Tupac Shakur. CNN's Camila Bernal joins us live right now along with CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. So first to you, Camila, what are we learning about this arrest? Hey, Boris. Sources telling CNN that they have arrested Dwayne Keith Davis, also known as Keffy D. He was arrested this morning, according to sources, in connection with the killing of Tupac Shakur. Now, we do know that in July, uh, the Las Vegas Metro Police Department served a search warrant on Davis's wife's home. And what they were looking for was any evidence uh, linking to this crime. They were looking for anything that could show motive as to the killing of Tupac Shakur. And specifically, we know that in this search warrant, uh, police were able to obtain multiple tablets, an iPhone. They took five computers, USB drives, photographs. So we know that they have been looking into this case and have been investigating this case since it happened in 1996. At the moment, we do not know what Davis has been charged with. We are expecting a press conference later on today to get details from authorities. But again, this is something that happened in 1996 and police have been looking into for years now. Um, Dwayne Keith Davis, he had described himself as one of the only witnesses to this shooting. If you recall, Tupac Shakur was in a car. They were at a boxing match at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. They were in a car and all of a sudden there was another car that pulled next to them and the shooting began. Uh, it's unclear exactly who shot Tupac, but again, this is a huge development in this case years later as we now know that there is someone arrested in connection to this case for us. Joey, to you, it's been nearly three decades since Tupac was shot and killed. Uh, this is a surprising development, to say the least. What's your reaction? Yeah, so Boris, uh, significant and surprising uh, development without question. But I think that what we have to understand is in murder cases, there is no statute of limitations. Uh, it's quite common that you have law enforcement throughout this country uh, that continue to operate in a cold case capacity, continue to follow leads. And decades later, sometimes they come to a conclusion. Obviously, in any arrest here, right, anyone's presumed innocent till proven guilty. But police have been working this case. And in fact, they are giving the indication that is police that potentially this person was quite involved. Now, remember, right, in the event that there's a pull-up shooting and indications are it happened from the backseat of that white Cadillac 27 years 
ago in September. But, you know, in the event that you aided, abetted, assisted, or acted in concert, you need not even be the person who pulled the trigger. There are some indications from the person that they have in custody now that it was his nephew who was in the back seat. Again, all allegations. His nephew, of course, uh, uh, who is now dead. Uh, but his nephew denied that he was involved at all. And, of course, the giving up of his nephew, the person in custody now, is in connection with another case where he was questioned. There's uh, certainly reports from his own book that he was present, that he was there, that he was in that vehicle. Now, mere presence, to be clear, is never enough. You have to establish that you had knowledge of it, were in on it, and acted in accord with whatever was occurring. And so certainly now, after all of this time, yes, there are challenges, Boris, and moving forward, but you have to believe that based on the search warrant they conducted in July of the suspect's wife's home, based upon the information they gathered, based upon street intelligence and other information, that they have probable cause to believe that he's involved, and we'll see how the prosecution moves forward after today. Joey, to me, just the fact that this was a cold case for so long is significant because this was a very public shooting on the Las Vegas Strip. You imagine there were many witnesses there, and it came after a fight, right, at the MGM Grand that was caught on security camera in which there was always suspicion that some of the folks that were involved in that fight may have been involved in Tupac's shooting. Talk to us about the challenges of looking into a case like this with nearly 30 years of cold evidence? Yeah, Boris, it's a great question. Uh, certainly, you want uh, to have arrests that are closer in time to when an incident occurred for a variety of reasons, right? The nature of the evidence presented, the memories of the witnesses, the value, uh, whether people's memories have gone stale or gone cold. But you don't now know, right? The reality is, is that if you're investigating a case for longstanding, presumably police have done a very diligent job, have information just not based on the arrest today, but of information that they've gleaned over the course of a number of years in connecting the dots. They have information that this particular suspect, verbal statements he's given, memoirs of his own that have been out there. We don't know, Bars, who uh, police have spoken to in the course, right, of getting to today, how they have connected this person here how other information may have been preserved that police have. Remember, we have the public reports, but we don't know the in-depth information that police have gleaned. So yes, in any prosecution, even if you got in a, a murder that occurred yesterday, there are challenges. However, in the country, they're pretty good at putting together cold cases, and there have been significant amount of convictions predicated upon cases that are decades old. We'll see what the nature of the evidence is here, or at least get a look into that when there's a press conference held that announces more with respect to what that evidence could be. Yeah, we're going to be watching that press conference very closely. Again, if you're just joining us, major breaking news in the murder of legendary rapper Tupac Shakur. There has been an arrest in Las Vegas uh, in that case. Joey Jackson, Camino Bernal, thank you so much uh, for that. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast. <clears throat> Hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 30, 2023. So I have been told uh, maybe no shutdown. I was kind of checking the news right as we uh, were getting ready to go live. And it looks like the House 
and the Senate have both oh wait a minute the house so i'm looking at nbc news right now house has passed a 45 day funding bill and the senate just has to approve this uh, sometime i guess before midnight and they will at least have a 45 day respite to figure things out no shutdown i know we talked about this extensively yesterday for neutralizing workplace racism uh, having cows listeners who called in and i'm sure listeners as well uh, who talked about how this would impact them directly, whether it's paycheck or uh, other indirect impacts. We can talk about that yesterday, too, in terms of <clears throat> people who don't have uh, access to child care or other services that are delayed, stalled, whatever the case may be. So, you know, hopefully that will uh, not be the case for uh, cows listeners. But all of that chaos, we talked about all that in great detail all of that chaos deliberate in the system of racism white supremacy in fact i remember the good old obama days we heard him in the uh clips the shutdowns and all that that was like every other day like we're gonna do everything that we can to stall and make this nigga fail weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts observations counter racist suggestions the number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605 313 The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate a few things to share before we get started one uh, we should be here I think on Monday uh, we will not be at our normal time uh, I think we should have uh, guest on joining us from uh, South Africa talk about white supremacy racism on the continent global problem we just had Dr. Falkoff on the program now she does reside in South Africa but she joined us from Mexico she got I forgot what it was some sort of scholarship or fellowship or whatever to do a business trip uh, to come to this part of the world and uh, study I think racism related I think and then she's going back to South Africa but yeah she, Dr. Falkoff uh, native of South Africa joined us from Mexico to talk about South Africa and then we'll do it again this time having an actual person in South Africa to chat it up thus we will be on substantially earlier than normal I always 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 hate those early programs uh, I'm not a morning person um, just I'm not a morning person I can't say that particularly like I can do early morning yoga no problem Lots of that have taught early morning yoga, taken early morning yoga, can do that no problem. But I don't have to talk there. Even if I'm teaching, I'm not really talking to anyone in general. You're just giving directions, see? But all that, when you got, oh, hey, Bill, how are you doing? So I'm not a morning, but it takes me a while to kind of get up and (sighs) get into my day. It's rough on the plantation, you know. But we will sacrifice uh, for Monday. So I think because of the 
time difference. Uh, it is so far, I think it is 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, and 11 a.m. Pacific uh, for Monday. To me, that's just like ungodly. You know, like most of the time, I'm up by 9 a.m., if not before then. Like I said, I don't have a problem with it. It's just having to actually do a lot of chatting to other people that early. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's do. Let's wait till noon and then we can get down. Anyway, that will be Monday. Uh, we'll let folks know about other programs coming up for the month of October. Our 21st program of this month, September. Didn't even get a chance to get my breath good. And we will continue. Uh, invest if you think the cows is constructive listener supported counter racist radio hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button in the top right corner a uh, huge thanks to all of the investors who have kept us on the air no shutdowns uh, uninterrupted if we get to February it'll be 15 years uninterrupted Hopefully we have been constructive more often than not. Uh, helped non-white people to some degree all over the known universe get a slightly better understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. Speaking of which, we did have, I think I said something about it on the program uh, because Dr. Falkoff was doing a lot of interrupting. I think we had two consecutive guests on from outside the U.S., Dr. Falkoff and Dr. Neil Klaus, where they were doing a lot of interrupting and being discourteous, where it was difficult to even just get questions in, get them answered without them doing all this interrupting and practicing racism, I suspect. Uh, but it was so challenging getting at information. Uh, Dr. Fal and there was so much information because she was talking about racism in South Africa, what it means to be white, uh, rape of black males. Like, it was so much information, uh, but privileged black males in South Africa. Uh, but Dr. Falkoff, I didn't, most of our guests, it's not like I'm watching videos for the most part. It's not like they have made documentaries or where they're sitting and chatting and that sort of thing. I'm just reading, you know, their book or whatever information they have. Uh, and a lot of times they don't even have a picture of themselves in the book. So you'd have to go and do some digging to even see what this person looks like. Sometimes they don't even have a picture on their faculty page. Dr. Falkoff, I didn't go back and look at her faculty page until a little bit before the program. I was like, whoa, she looks a little swarthy, a, a touch of the tar brush. Like, uh, hmm. Are you sure you're accepted as white? Like I said something about that on the program. We didn't have time to get to all that. And some of the listeners, they looked too and said, oh my goodness, like what in the world? Are you sure she's classified as white? Like what is going on here? I've never been to South Africa, so I would have to see like, since they have such a uh, small number of people classified as white in that part of the world, like they might be more forgiving, you know, and who they accept as a white person. But anywho, maybe we'll have time to revisit that on Monday morning anywho uh, for the broadcast today some of the audio segments uh, that we heard at the beginning 
the first segment they talked about uh, down in Alabama at Tuskegee specifically, uh, they talked about the VA Veterans Association for Negro Veterans from World War One, which kind of shook me for a second because I guess, you know, that's so long. I mean, that's 100 years. They said the centennial. I was thinking World War Two, but they said, no, World War One. Like, whoa, I'm surprised they even built such a facility at that time. Like what? This is like in the middle of eugenics. I think Lothrop Stoddard, the rising tide of white world supremacy had literally just been published right around the same time period. So, man, that's uh, a little bit surprising. But then when I put things back in context, like, oh, OK, if we're not going to treat them and all the rest of it, and if we're going to have a facility here that we can use for whatever purposes we want, we being racists, we want to conduct experiments, study our negras. Great. Win win. And we don't have to be bothered with them pestering us for medical care. And I was thinking, too, they said, so they built this facility in Alabama for Negro veterans of World War One. Now, certainly at that time, this is way before the Great Migration has kicked in full effect. But I mean, dang. So if I'm a black person at this time period. I live in New York or wherever. That is a rough train ride. To put it mildly, you got to trek all the way to Alabama. Heck, even if I'm a black person and I live in the South, we, if I live in Texas, let's say, going to Texas, you got niggers there. That's not exactly close. Does not, or retired firefighters, some of the folks who live in South Florida, and you got to trek all the way to Alabama. In 1920 or 1925. Good luck. Now, the other point that I thought was super uh, important, they spoke with Dr. Vanessa Northington Gamble. I suspect black female, but I'm not sure because they didn't have image. I can double check real quick to confirm. But they spoke. It doesn't really matter uh, for my poll. I guess it would matter in a sense that if a white person made the claim that was made in this report, if Dr. Northington Gamble is classified as white, maybe I would say more. Okay, she's a black female. That's what I thought. Victim of white supremacy. Victims guaranteed qualified, but accuracy is important. I humbly Dr. Vanessa Northington Gamble has way more education than myself. I do not have any aspersions to cast on her at all. The people who are most to blame classified as white. All of that said, accuracy is so important. Even if you want to highlight, and I mean, this is one, I'm really not looking for things to highlight, to brag, whoopee, we did either. That is really embarrassing at this point in 2025, in my opinion, where we are still on the plantation. That said, I'm not looking for, hey, man, we thought this was a black controlled institution. That is embarrassing to say, and it is flat out wrong. I wouldn't care if I was a I was Mark Furman. I'm a high school dropout GED with three community colleges. And that's Dr. Vanessa Northington Gamble, medical doctor. I wouldn't care. That is flat wrong. There's no way in the Christ. I wouldn't say that right now. 2025 no institution in this world is negro controlled if any of you all got one one let's hear it anything south africa niger they got all the coups if you can think of one 
let's hear. I think it's doubly embarrassing to even make a statement like that for, you're talking about Tuskegee in 1920? I'm thinking, dang, did they set this up to get these veterans in the Tuskegee experiment too? How many of them? Even that tab. Let's see. Did any of these black World War I veterans end up in the experiment? But forget all that when just right now, literally days ago, I just played the report where they talked about it's widespread theft at HBCUs. We don't even fund these little Negro institutions that are almost unanimously named after white people, named after white people. Howard is not named after no Negro. I know that's not in Alabama, but still. Then turn around and say they're black controlled. Do we fund them? Get up. That really bothered me. That is such a consistent and long running problem. Black people are not in charge of anything. Even when Obama was in the White House. Even when Madiba was president of South Africa. We are not in charge of anything. And when I hear victims of white supremacy say that, that just further reinforces for me how confused we are about the world in which we live. Again, forget all that. If I'm up here talking crazy, which could be, I'm not feeling great. So, hey, might have rolled out of bed and been talking crazy. Should have got more rest. Maybe. But if you got one one institution, business, whatever, that Negro, white people don't have no say so about this at all. Directly, indirectly, nada. Name one. I'll wait. You can hit me on Twitter, social media as well, at Until Justice. I'll share it and stand corrected. Now, uh, they talked about the shortcomings sticking with our army theme. We talked about this a lot over the past year, really throughout COVID, really. They talked about the shortfalls for the army recruiters. I had never really given it any thought, but I do not think army recruiters should be in high schools. They don't have, I can't think of any other, like they don't even let McDonald's come in to recruit in the high school, do they? I'm an old fogey. I haven't been in high school in a long time. Do they let like Jack in the Box, White Castle, do they let them come in? And Man, we hurt. Can you hold the fryer down for a few hours? We hurt. We got some of these migrant children, Miguel and them, they went and ratted us out to 60 minutes. They could doing all these segments and stuff. Are we abusing migrant labor? Come on, man. Come on down here. We'll hook it up for you. Do they do that? Because I do not remember anybody else being able to come and hang out and recruit, as they say, and particularly recruit you to go do some killing of non-white people, most likely. Like, that is absurd. Like, why is that even allowed? I don't want to hear nothing about no career or nothing. Like, scholarship. I don't even remember colleges being able to come in and recruit. Did they let them do that? I went to college. I don't remember any. I don't remember Notre Dame, University of Washington, Florida State Community College even coming in they got a booth set up come to our school we'll hook it up for you we love black boys I don't remember that come tow a gun they set you up in high school put you in the lunchroom and everything white supremacy culture at any rate I do not think that they should be in schools uh, I would seriously we've been talking about this before because we have folks who served uh, in the military or what have you uh, different branches and all that even Needy Fuller uh, to be specific uh, 
I would have a serious conversation if you have offspring nieces nephews uh, if you retired firefighter and other folks you have access to young people we would have to have a serious conversation about that that army recruiting if you know you feel like you don't have great choices and that's something you want to consider man honest dialogue about all of this the signing bonus we talked about that before where they try and cheat a lot of non-white people you don't get all the the resources and benefits that they could offer to you especially if they're hurting for people they should be trying to hook it up big time right make sure that you get everything and then really think about this how long of a commitment is this am I going to die for this am I going to be maimed or I got to go to Tuskegee VA and hope that they can do something for me they said what's the first thing that you think of when someone says army Lavina Johnson now that I would love it you get the recruiter he comes to talk to you finds your little 17 year old black daughter says hey look here Asada don't you want to come be all you can be in the army we sure you don't do no drugs do you you look like you don't eat Cheetos so you can pass the weight limit you don't do no fentanyl nothing like that okay okay come on Asada we got you we got you what do you think of when you say army Lavina Johnson ooh hmm hmm that's where they switch up and see we let me see if I can get a female recruiter talk to you because that that is way ancient history and we have done way better that is old school and man don't even don't even bring that up don't even think about that we're gonna be great you're gonna be great you hear seen Obama we're gonna be great hmm well if I did have offspring I probably would tell them not to do this no army military none of that stuff you'll probably be used to kill non-white people and you see they said in that clip they were at the so-called fair f-a-i-r and they were getting children they said like 10 eight-year-old children like are you serious what in the world how we get them trained up to kill do some killing at eight see if you can operate the drone oh we got all the video games that have been specifically scientifically engineered make you a better killer soldier get over some of those hang-ups about taking a non-white life and they out at the fair F-A-I-R make a game out of it tell me that's not white culture through and through Lavina Johnson uh, let's see oh and I didn't even forget that they said I mentioned that two times for the so-called immigrants they said what are we going to do we got all these white people addicted to opioids all these white people addicted to Cheetos what are we going to do what are we going to do hmm we get Miguel Pedro ah yes yes yeah see you flunked out of school anyway you spent all those nights cleaning the chicken guts up off the floor and such so you probably drop out like Mark Furman but you since you're not Mark Furman white man you will not be able to go and get a great job and mess over rental James how about you come to the army yes yes we'll hook it up come on Pedro Miguel, yes, divert. This is one big melting pot. And then we'll take you to go and take you around the world and kill other non-white people. You'll get some skills, too. Man, you will be the best drone flyer in the history of Mexico. you have lots to write back and tell your family and friends about. Man. I was waiting for them. They said immigrants. I was waiting for them to say prisoners, too. They might do that, too. We've locked up so many Jamal and Leroy and all the rest of them. Like, hey. You want to get out? Hey, 
You like killing? Shh. We need some killers. Let's see. They got the... They had the segment uh, in Muskogee, Oklahoma. That is Neely Fuller Jr.'s so-called hometown. Uh, They said the Creek, C-R-E-E-K, Indians, they uh, went to court, and they will have to accept the dark, the black people as Creek Indians, and they get all of the hookups and resources for being a member. They said the Indian tribe was upset. They're mad about this. They're going to appeal. As I was listening to all of that, I did think, dang, that's Neely Fuller. I wonder if he heard that. He might even be so-called Creek Indian. Who knows? Wouldn't that be crazy? Find out Neely Fuller Jr.'s in the uh, Creek Indian. Uh, maybe he'd get a hookup, get some benefits, all that, make it easier to get his book published. But I was thinking, like, dang, do they have black people that look like I don't, Neely Fuller Jr. or Dick Gregory? I don't know. Lil Wayne, who own casinos and are set up because they have so many people who look show enough, like Joe Biden, Nikki Haley, Elizabeth Warren, who look to me like they'd be classified as white, no problem. Even in Nazi Germany, no problem. Oh no. Sitting Bull was my great 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 uncle. And you know, I I definitely empathize with the plight of my red sisters and brothers. It'll be Elizabeth someone look like Elizabeth Warren saying that. Like, do they have black people where I might actually believe that? Like, oh yes, I do empathize with my red brothers and sisters and how we've been terrorized like oh yeah that, that do they have that because i have never seen that i live in washington state they have all kinds of casinos and stuff here i don't do the gambling i've even been to vegas i have never ever seen super melanated so-called indians owning casinos and gambling establishments if you all know of such a facility let me know but maybe this will be the kickoff with the Creek Indian. Maybe Mr. Fuller. Wouldn't that be crazy? Mr. Fuller's a Creek Indian now. They're going to sell the, have the code book on all the casinos. Let's see. The uh, they had a number of council, white council members. Robbie Ortiz. He's quoting uh, Chris Rock from The Office. Talked about all that before. Skip through all that. Uh, last two, I will get in where our last three I will get in number one. Now, I we just had Dr. Brian Pitts, suspected racist, on the program Wednesday evening. Talked about him going to Brazil, having sex with black males, even going to North Carolina to have sex with black males, anti-sex. We just talked about all of that. His report was one chapter in a book that was about ethnopornography. That's the word they use in the title of the book. He uses that title uh, term as well, ethnopornography. I even I asked him if ethnopornography is the same thing as racist. And he said it might be a synonym, same thing. Anyway, in this book, ethnopornography, uh, they have a different chapter. He said the whole book is about basically uh, racist sexual fetishes that white people have most of the authors of these reports are white people there is a different chapter report about Abu Ghraib and all of the sexual abuse of not hey that's what I just said join the army you can go around the world and terrorize kill non-white people even get into your Jeffrey Dahmer stuff in fact Jeffrey Dahmer, Dahmer enlisted as did Atlanta Olympic bomber Eric Rudolph as did 
Joey 22, Joseph G. Christopher, right on for Buffalo. And you just keep going right on down, even Mark Furman. You can go enlist and go all around the world, killing, torturing, maiming dark people. What fun! What fun! They might pull out the cell phones and such here, try and get you in trouble for choking up old Eric Garner. Go around the world, hey, Abu Ghraib, do whatever you want to. Make a pyramid of nude, dark dudes. And all of the sex, that's, that's the whole chapter. I was looking at that chapter like, dang, that's Jeff Dahmer, isn't it? Isn't that Jeff? It's the same thing. All that anti-sex can't treat you like a person. I got to do some old humiliating sexually degrading same thing chopping your privates off and all of that making you uh, down in Florida Claude Neal chop your penis off and make you eat it that's the same thing that's the same thing white culture through and through 20 years on did y'all do anything compensate the victim nah 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 matter of fact that would be another one they say hey this first thing that comes to your mind when someone says army Abu Ghraib ooh, ooh. Mm-hmm. wasn't prepared for that one give me a second to get my retort anywho I'm going to have to go back and look at that chapter because I mean for really that should be included when we get on all this sexual intercourse and white people being sexual terrorists like man spotlight that you gonna tell me that y'all all upset about 9-11 we just passed the so-called anniversary for that you wanna call it that we're all upset about this defending America democracy what what these aren't even the people who did the bombing but what nude pyramid of dark males Fuller said that's exact that is the essence he said that is the essence of white supremacy racism that sort of activity right there that's why you keep seeing it over and over again down in Mississippi where they had the chocolate sauce and the dildos exact same conduct last week Louisiana it was the brave cave the officers took the flashlight we gotta inspect your rectum vaginal area you know about you niggers second one of three they gave the report on well I'll just say quickly this doesn't count but when they talked about the prosecutors not charging convicting these enforcement officers who terrorized killed choked black people or whatever else they did chocolate sauce and all that even though those officers did get convicted uh, it was left out and in my view deliberately and this is exactly what I was talking about with Dr. Neil Klaus when he sassed me you don't know what you're talking about no, I do know what I'm talking about. In fact, I know so well you're practicing racism right now in sassing me. They totally left out most of the people who are in charge of prosecuting in this area of the world are classified as white. That is a huge part of the problem. And they didn't say anything about that at all. They included those no count officers in Tennessee, all black. That shouldn't even be a part of the statistics because really, are you convicting white people for these color of law crimes? That's what they call it, uh, the technical term. You have a badge, you're an officer, and you go out and terrorize and do the old Tamir Rice and all that. Are you prosecuting 
white badge holders? That's really what we want to know. And it seems overwhelmingly the answer is no. You got to go and get these old black dudes. In Tennessee, that's unjust too, but still... I know you convict black people. I don't need no, you know, convincing of that. Even if they got a badge. They didn't even let black people with a badge arrest white people. So, I mean, niggers is niggers. Uh, And even I know that because they talked about this before in New York City specifically. It was the exact same thing. And they did highlight it's mostly white prosecutors throughout the U.S. They don't even prosecute white child abusers. And that was specifically WNYC, what they were talking about. They got a black prosecutor rolling, convicting them white moms left and right. She said, these weren't even difficult cases. These were easy convictions. Why weren't they being prosecuted? White prosecutors? Hmm. I'm going to look up for my white sisters and brothers. Even when my white sisters are abusing white children, white people do not care about children got that one two ways because I wasn't even going to mention anything about in Baltimore all that they said 600 children that's probably a low count you think some Freddie Grays are in there 600 children so you think all the children that they raped in Baltimore were classified as white that they got away with hmm any hoodles uh, in Idaho, not that far. I think Idaho is kind of Pacific Northwest or at least close. I've been to Idaho before. They had the volleyball team. That's one Dr. Hextrom just told us about where they have all of these athletic teams and what have you, where they are very overrepresented with individuals who would be classified as white. She just talked about that volleyball, golf, rowing, skeet chewing, just goes on and on and on. Uh, Grace Clay, excuse me, Grace Clay, 16 year old black female. Say her teammates locked the door, grabbed pillows and proceeded to assault her. You didn't pick our cotton today, nigga. She said she just went, hid in the corner and just took it. that is just another you can add to the list normally I talk about this in the context of tackle football and saying no way no way brain damage all the rest of it and I'm not really interested in having Jerry Sandusky Bobby Bowden rest of these white dudes around my child it's not that we every week somebody getting pepper sprayed at the football game and all the rest of it I mean really there are way safer way more constructive ways for us to get exercise for our children to get exercise learn teamwork all of that whatever else they're supposed to be getting in addition to the brain damage with tackle football they can do that you do not need to have black children it for what so that grace clay can get pummeled assaulted told she's going to be picking cotton posted on social media make a video of all of this make a video of you picking cotton put it on social media I would not have my child in any of those athletic teams. Uh, I feel so bad for her. We just talked to all the children this week and everything that they've had to endure for the last 14 years. And then on top of that, the white supremacy racism. Man, I hope she gets all kinds uh, of counseling. That's what I said last week. 
when those young uh, black children, they were in California, they moved to Georgia where they said, man, we get up every day, go to school. Getting up and going to hell. That sounds like hell to me. I'm on the TV. These are supposed to be my team. I thought she was supposed to be camaraderie and all for one. one. That's supposed to be the point of sports. If it's just going to be racism, I could have stayed at home for all this. I wouldn't have my child on any of the uh, <clears throat> athletic teams. It's just, are you serious? Anyway, uh, the last <clears throat> report I will get to, then we'll get to callers. Uh, the finally made an arrest almost 30 years later. They make an arrest of a black male in the murder of Tupac Shakur, 1996, September of 1996. Uh, no less. We might have to talk to John Pataj again about all of this. Uh, he's one of the first guests that we had on the program way back in 2009. He's been a guest on the program repeatedly uh, over the years to talk about uh, legalization of cannabis. He is a drug addiction counselor by trade. Uh, so <clears throat> he's written and talked about that from his own personal uh, experience. Then we have repeatedly uh, discussed his book, The FBI's War Against Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders. Uh, which is extensively uh, footnoted where he makes uh, the case that Tupac Shakur and many other, in fact, his entire family and many other black uh, entertainers, particularly in so-called hip hop. And even before that, Bob Marley and others, Paul Robeson, uh, that these people were victims of Pro, And he strongly makes the case. Uh, Tupac Shakur was under FBI surveillance, uh, same type of Pro program, even the moment that he was killed and that they same people who had a vested interest in seeing his mother, Dr. Afini Shakur Davis, uh, the Black Panthers, Minister Malcolm X, same people that we talk about all the time, that those same individuals would have a vested interest uh, in not seeing Tupac Shakur with all of his fandom uh, decide to be a little bit more constructive. Can't take the, the chance. Maybe he finds Neely Fuller's code book and starts rapping about the 10 stops or giving out the books for free at the concerts or anything else. Like, eh, eh. We're done with all that. And then the wait 30 years prosecute one black person. Have to see if maybe matter of fact that is so crazy we spoke to John Patash in October of 2009. That was the first time he was a guest on the program. And we even got a shout out in the acknowledgments in that book. Not that that, you know, means anything. John Patash suspected racist. So I got a shout out from a suspected racist. But we are in the uh, liner notes for the book. If you get a copy, I guess that was published after 2009. Any hoodles, uh, yeah, I would encourage, in fact, with Tupac Shakur, I said very honestly when he was on that program in October of 09 that I was never, you know, a big Tupac Shakur fan, even though certainly I've listened to hip hop and all of that. I was never a big fan and he wasn't one of my favorites or what have you. But once I started to study racism, white supremacy and all of that and seeing the legacy with his uh, parents, Afeni Shakur and all of that, I'm like, oh, I see. Uh, we've done a number of programs, in fact, on uh, his death. We had, as I said, John Patash, repeatedly a guest on the program. We had Greg Cading, white man, uh, murder rap. He was a guest on the program. I think it was 2013. Uh, we had to do two efforts. Second time we got him. He, I'm sure, said, I told you, I told you, Brother Gusty, this was not no Cointel Pro and all that. I told you this was just black on black crime. Isn't that what I say? See, see, I told you, see which 
hey, it is very easy for individuals classified as white racists to get non-white people to do their bidding, even killing other non-white people. That happens frequently. Make it easy, in fact. And I think they got lots of claims where they can point out that, yep, we did even Patrice Lumumba. How many of them you want to stack up all over the world? Do that. I just said, recruit you for the army and send you to Vietnam or Iraq, Abu Ghraib, wherever else. Kill dark people. They do that easy. Lots of ways. Greg Kading, that was one. Randall Sullivan from the book club, Labyrinth, just mentioned that. That was a part of our uh, O.J. Simpson run. We did uh, Jeff Tubin, and then we followed that with uh, Geronimo G. Pratt, uh, Geronimo G. Jaga Pratt, Last Man Standing, and then Randall Sullivan's Labyrinth which is all about the murder of Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G. and how all that connects to the L.A. riots and O.J. Simpson trial and blah, blah, blah. He kind of presents the same thing that uh, this was black people, uh, Negro on Negro crime type of thing. I don't even think he mentions Pro in the book. I'd have to go back to double check, but that isn't even that long ago. We read that uh, 2021 summertime. Uh, we read Labyrinth. So go back, uh, check in the archives uh, for folks who want to get a little bit more detail on the murder of Tupac Shakur and even timely for the so-called 50 years of rap music they got lots of that they should have been talking about black people so-called hip-hop artists some of the most important of all time who get killed and eh, eh, eh. we wait till the football game gets done and then we'll get around to investigate in fact Randall Sullivan he even said in the book they weren't really interested. The Las Vegas Police Department, they were not that interested in investigating all this because it's like, hey, this is some Negro stuff and Mike Tyson's no count homies and everything and black people, they don't, they got the whole no snitching, they don't want to talk to, ah, forget it, we're done. He, he wrote all that in the book, like almost verbatim the way that I'm saying it. That's the way he wrote it in the book. They say that about us, that's Negro culture, no snitching, so-called. Anywho, uh, number again, Six oh five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, if we have anyone, if you can think of one just one operation that is totally negro controlled white people have no input influence say so over what happens at all please correct old gusty renegade i don't want to be up here giving out false info let me know if you can think of one thank you again to the non-white children for hanging out with us earlier this week we got so many positive uh, comments from that so many people were really the word they used was inspired repeatedly in fact by hearing young non-white people who sounded amazing accurate like they under like they have parents who are doing their job talk to your children about racism white supremacy that is one of the most important things you have to do as a non-white parent talk to your children about white supremacy racism and often 
it sounds like we got lots of parents who got A plus plus pluses for the children that we talked to this past Tuesday. Spectacular effort. Keep it up. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Hello, Matthew. Irie, already mentioned with the uh, recruiting. Hello, everyone, and you know, hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing good, Gus. Recruiting. Um, I was recruited twice. Once by Army recruiter, and then the second time by Marine recruiters. Or should I say? their uniforms attracted me to ask them who they were. And then they told me they were Marines. And then I ended up joining the Marines because the army recruiter was just very silly. I remember that. I was like, are we talking about joining the army or going like to the mall? I I was confused. And so I didn't take the army seriously, but, um, you know, I found out that it's all part of the system. So, yeah, it is what it is. Um, I really do feel for the young man that went away or deserted, as they would call it, because, um, you know, depending on what's going on with uh, the status of the military, you know, that's punishable by death. And I don't think they're going to do that. But I also noticed that the white guy went over to North Korea, you know, eons ago, and he didn't get turned over, but this black young man did. That's interesting. Um, let me see. I wrote down some notes. Pardon me while I fetch them. Um, hangman in school um, that was mentioned in one of, the, one of your articles, I actually taught last this past Tuesday, fourth grade, and the kids had like a little bit of a break time and I saw that they were playing hangman. So I was like, oh my God, how am I going to try to steer them away from this because they don't understand what they're doing? So I said, why don't we change it to build a man or build a person? I said, you know, like, what? Like, but you have to hang them. I said, do we? I said, do we really want to murder someone to spell out some words? I said, why don't we build them? You still have to draw the parts. You still have to draw the the head, the arms, you know, and if the kids want the game to last longer, they'll draw fingers and eyes and, you know, a smile. I was like, this is almost the same thing except he's living. They're like, I like that. I like that. I was like, oh, thank God. You know, kids can be a little bit critical, um, and I just didn't want to come across hope it's not a metaphor or kooky to them or like too liberal. I don't know. I I don't know. I just didn't think it was constructive anymore and I don't think it's constructive. So I found a successful redirect. Um, and on that tip, uh, if you ain't homeschooling, you got to work with your children, please. And thank you. The fourth graders that I was teaching this week were reading at first and second grade levels. And one young lady, I had to uh, track her dad down to let her know how behind she was. She's not even reading at all. I do not know how a person gets to fourth grade and can't read at all, um, except for racism and white supremacy. And the last thing with the young lady that was cornered and you could even say it's kidnapping if they locked the door 
and then they forced her to be in there while she was assaulted. For them to post the stuff online, I thought that was cyberbullying. Whenever you post online or through the so-called airwaves, that anything connected to the Internet, I don't know the words verbatim or through and through, but the reason I'm familiar with this is because when my son was in seventh grade, he had a crush on this white girl because at the time I was confused and we were living in an all-white area for the school district. And so he had a crush on the girl, asked her to be his girlfriend. She said no. Yes, I know. She said no. So then that's when he he ranted about it on YouTube, but he didn't say her name. He gave her a false name. The assistant principal made it a point to call me and said, yes, Miss Irie, we want you to know that uh, your son, he made a video about another student, and um, we checked it out. And if he had said her name even once, you know, we would have had to call the state police because that's cyberbullying because it happened over the Internet. And, and you know, and um, also YouTube is considered social media as well. So I don't know where they posted it to social media, but if it's on social media, by golly, I think that cyberbullying, shouldn't they have some charges? Um, and then other than that, you know, I've come to terms with the changes in ecological uh, situations in Louisiana and everything. I'm just, I just believe they're really trying to find a way to get southern Louisiana just off the map. And it just is really sad because, you know, my ancestors directly are there. And I had some trouble with that over the past, like, week or so. It really was hitting me. My, um, I have a relative's birthday coming up and just thinking about all that. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is, where is this place going to be in the future? Is it going to be still around or not? I'm, it's just sad. But I hope everyone is doing well and exercising and doing things to keep their immune system high because it's getting ready to be winter if it ain't already in some places. So thank you. I'll meet my line. Much obliged. Irie, uh, I guess real quick before we get some of the other folks, did they, did they, you said, talked about the goofy recruiters that they had uh, when you were back young and, and being solicited by these folks. Did they allow... I don't know, McDonald's or anybody else to come to like the school to do recruiting that you remember? No, fast foods, nothing like that. Just community college or military or, or colleges, but mostly community. Like the school I went to, most of the kids were a little bit behind academically. So I remember like Delgado Community College would come through. Or whatever, but the recruiters, oh man, they were, <laughs> they were like, I'm using a simile, but they were, they were like bees to a flower. Every outside just hanging out trying to catch kids. Like, where are you going? You know, you want something to eat? You know, okay, well, golly. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Right, I would have no problem with the community college. They want to go recruit. No problem there. Mark Furman even took that route. Fine. But the Army and the Midlife, come on, come on. <sighs> Much obliged, uh, Irie. The white person that she was talking about uh, who defected 
to Korea, North Korea. Uh, Joe Dresnock, D-R-E-S-N-O-K. They did a whole uh, 60 Minutes segment about him. That dude did not get uh, handed over immediately. He got a wife. He became a movie star. This is on 60 Minutes. This is not me, you know, making up stuff and just telling y'all anything. This is on 60 Minutes. You can watch this, I think. They have it in the archives. He went there, hung out. They used him for uh, propaganda purposes and what have you. They even talked about how they would have rations difficulties and not enough food and what have you. Non-white people in North Korea would be struggling to get food. Mr. Dresnock, white man, defector, he got food. Old Travis King, black male, they booted him back quickly. Like, he was over there, I think, for a couple of weeks or whatever, and boop, on out of here. Beat it, beat it, beat it. But they, um, brother, they, they, eh, eh, beat it, beat it, beat it. She said that was a penalty punish uh punish it could be punished by death in uh the military, like dang. I didn't, you know, do the military or what have you. I'm pretty ignorant about everything, but dang, I totally uh forgot that. I guess she did say she doubts that they're gonna kill Mr. King, but I mean wow. E that would be another reason. Now you can add him. I would have whole lots of reasons. It would be nah, I'm good on that. If I had offspring or nieces, nephews, I would do my part. Nah, let's let's pick some other options. Let's get the occupational handbook, occupational outlook handbook, and see what's available. But we got to find something better than you holding a rifle to go to Abu Ghraib. Got to. Other folks dialed in with a hand up. Star six one. We have commentary. Uh, proceed. Let's see. May I be heard? Greetings, everyone. Go ahead. Thank you, sir. Um, well, just uh, about the segments that you play. Well, also, uh, good evening. I'm not sure if I said that. Um, but the, the Army recruiters in high school, I had noticed they said um, they're going to do a high school blitz. I just, you know, thought that, you know, constant warfare, constant violence in the language. Blitz is short for Blitzkrieg, which, you know, is what the um, Nazi... Uh, war strategy was in World War II. Um, that segment where they were talking about uh, people looting the Foot Locker, the Lululemon, and the Apple Store, they kept saying, they were repeating it like over and over, that they didn't think that the looting was related to uh, the protesting black people. They didn't think the looting was related to the protesting black people. They just kept saying it over and over, and them saying it wasn't related repeatedly kind of made a person relate the two things in their mind. Well, it made me uh, relate them in my mind. Um, and that little girl, um, Grace Clay, um, her white classmates were practicing racism, mistreating her, you know, saying she didn't pick her cotton this morning. Um, 
when her mother started talking, she sounded like a white woman. And I'm not sure, though. But I did see a picture of the child, and she does look like she has a white parent. And um, she said, I felt so sorry because there's nothing I could have done to prevent this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe she could not stop these white children at school from mistreating her daughter. But I, I just really wondered what the mother has told Grace about white people who practice racism, you know, I just really wondered what they've talked about. Um, and that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. And thank you, retired firefighter. Much obliged. Uh, Lauren, they did say that they're going to blitz the high school. Does McDonald's, do they get to do a blitz of the high school? Like, we really need somebody on these chicken nuggets, like, right now. We got to go. Matter of fact, we might have to go and even blitz the middle school. Do they? I really do not remember. If I'm just old, if I'm foggy and all that, and McDonald's was there, and Hardee's and all that, and even places that you would want to work, not just fast food, great. But I do not remember that at all. At all. I don't even remember colleges, like, real talk. I don't even remember uh, community colleges or what have you or local schools even coming to you know hey get it military rifle navy army that's what I remember like come on the blitzkrieg on the high school talk to your children about the recruiting man seriously I would not Lavina Johnson Lavina Johnson uh, retired firefighter thank you for your patience sir Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, well, I would say that uh, they probably had a lot of trouble uh, 50 years ago uh, in colleges, especially uh, as far as recruiting is concerned. Also, you know, I think it's ironic that uh, they can have uh, recruiting from the military at high schools, but at the same time, taking away industrial arts from high schools uh, to whereas uh, young people can get certifications to be mechanics, uh, to be electricians, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, jobs that pay a livable salary. And that person coming out of high school would be able to take care of themselves and others that's called a family slash care group. Uh, the only, the only thing that I wanted to report was, uh, uh, it was on the news, uh, down here locally, uh, to whereas, uh, at the high high school, one of the two high schools in the area where I stay at beautiful Miami gardens, uh, Miami Carroll city senior high to be exact. Uh, it was reported that they have been having several large brawls at this high school. And I said, well, you know, at first it's a high school thing, you know, teenagers, you know, uh, get into it, that sort of thing. But what is, what they emphasized, what they emphasized, some of the people they interviewed as well as the news professionals themselves, that is between non-white black teenagers and 
this term that's called white Hispanic teenagers. They showed uh, clips of the fighting. And uh, so in my mind, I'm like a stay tuned uh, position. Uh, you know, you never know how that would go. Uh, I'm going to kind of like pay more attention to it and ask some people that I know that's, that either work at the area or know know about something more about it than I do. Uh, but that's what's been capturing my mind this week, uh, that particular story. And that's all I would say. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hmm. The infamous, the uh, white Hispanic. Sometimes they'll say the white uh, Latino. I don't know if you got to see, like, any pictures of the folks who were involved in all this mischief. Uh, did they, everybody who looked like they were in the brawl, did they look like they were all non-white people, if you got to see? Uh-oh, let's see. We lost him or not. Let's see. Oh, that was me. That was me. I, I muted myself by mistake. You, you can you see the imagery, but when it, I think when it goes through security cameras and then it's on the news by the time your eyes, the, the quote-unquote television viewer, sees it, it's kind of muddled, but... I can see where it's a uh, non-white black uh, young young person uh, fighting someone. I couldn't tell on whether or not the person they was fighting was a white person, quote unquote, or not. But that's what, like I said, that's what the, the news was stating. And one of the witnesses of a, of a local, uh, uh, like a 7-Eleven store, convenience store, uh, a person was stating that it happens a lot. That's what that that's quote unquote was what she was saying. It happens a lot. Uh, matter of fact, the the uh, administrative staff of the high school is aware of it because they have been following the teenagers at as school ends and they would be breaking up the fights. But, but the issue is that it could get elevated. Uh, you never know on who, who is, uh, also maybe contributing or participating in, in such, uh, such a thing. And, uh, some things like that can easily get more and more. Uh, there's always a lot of tension around here anyway. You know, uh, based on the on the on the subject itself, because uh, most of the most of the uh, stores around in this area, of course, is not uh, op- not owned and operated by non-white people who are rich classified as black. Although the majority of the population is non-white black. Uh, I go in some of the some of the stores, and you can like see a frown look or some sort of uh, uh, disposition to whereas it's, it's not very friendly out of the people who 
they may not be the owners of the store, but they they associated with with being employed at the store, and all of them all of them primary language is Spanish. You know, in these places, some of them are white, some of them are non-white. In these places, so. But anyway, the, the news the, the news article was the news article on television was was really was about uh, high school uh, young people, uh, non-white black males and females. They did emphasize that also, not just males, males and females fighting white Hispanic males and females after school. And I was, I'm like, because I, I brought it up in front of some other, some other guys, uh, Mr. Clark and a few other guys, who you know back in the day we used to organize together, that sort of thing. And uh, I didn't get any comment out of them, but. Uh, I'll see if it carries on and keep, keep some study on it. That's it. Much obliged for the details, uh, retired firefighter. Now, I, I didn't see the report that he's talking about. I didn't see that at all. I'm um, pretty far from uh, South Florida, but what he is talking about, it might not necessarily be uh, black boys and girls against uh the white Hispanic uh, boys and girls, but the meeting up to brawl and or even what we heard in Philadelphia, we're going to do the, the smash and loot the uh, Lulu mom or the Apple store or whatever. It's been lots of that. Um, I'd say particularly over the last two, three years or so. I even remember some of that before then, but especially I'd say the last two, three years, like, oh man, uh, they have videos of this online and such. I would definitely, I don't have children, but I would definitely talk to your offspring. Like, oh man, I would not want my child in any situation like that at all. Uh, it might seem fun and cool. We go grab some stuff. We're not going to get in trouble. Like, oh man, this stuff has been going on long enough. And with all of the armed white people that, and even armed non-white people, uh, that you have out in armed security guards and all the rest of it and uh, increasing surveillance and all the rest of it at minimum that's not something where you want to I went to get I don't even know which year I'm 16 so we're going to go loot the Lulu mom and get stretchy pants for white chicks okay so we go loot the Lulu mom the Apple even the Apple store most of and I know this because there is an Apple store about a 10 minute walk from where I'm sitting right now. That's where I went to go and do my research so that I could get my Apple way back when the first one uh, and have been there many times since uh, they, and I had a black employee tell me in detail because of that. Exactly. Mobs of people. Sometimes it'll be individuals, but mobs of people, they come and do the smash and grab, especially a lot of young people that, I think it's most of the merchandise that they have, uh, like the iPhones and that sort of thing, they don't even work. He, uh, I was little, I was there, and a black employee came out to take his break. Unfortunately, he came out to take his smoke break. Oh, uh, so he came out to take his smoke break. Like, oh, get away from me! Uh, 
So he finishes his cigarette and he comes over. He's like, man, these people have been coming out here. This is Richie Seattle. They come out here to the Apple store and run off. I said, yeah, I just saw that this weekend, which I did. I just saw two people. They ran in and same thing. Rah, they snatched and ran out of the store. And he says, man, that don't even work. They just put uh, goofy demos because they've had so much of that. That don't even work. So they just run off and you can't unlock it. Can't do anything with it. Stuff. All of that for merchandise that you can't even use. They said, he said that, that what they will do, they'll go steal those phones or wherever else they get a watch or whatever. They'll go take it and sell it to dumb people who are not aware that, oh, this device is defective or they already shut it down. It won't work, blah, blah, blah. So they cheat them out of their money and then they're stuck with a phone that they can't use and stolen property, too. So you get in trouble that way, too. All of that, like at minimum, now you have so many uh, cameras and such. I seriously doubt white people are going to, you know, let this just go on forever unchecked. If that means those robotic dogs that they've been talking about. We got to now use these for surveillance purposes and start catching some of these people and all that. We're not going to allow this like, oh, man. I And like I said, you have so many armed people. They've been talking about that every day. Armed security and just armed pedestrians. I would not want my child participating in that at all. If this we're upset about what the police did or we're just bored and don't have anything else to do for our weekend. None of that, that right there. Going back to do you understand white supremacy racism? Maybe some of the white children can do this sort of thing and deal and read their parents come in and make sure it doesn't go on their record and all that. You, as a Negro, boy or girl, I don't think so. You could die on the street for robbing the Lulu mom store. They say you tried to smack a white woman or something. Anywho, uh, much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Talk to your offspring. Uh, we still now see he said that the black people some of the tension he talked about in beautiful South Florida was because uh, you have a lot of people classified as black but they don't own or they're not in charge of anything oh man that sounds like what I said before so I'm still waiting anybody can you think this is a negro operation whitey don't have no say so control input over what happens with this here black people are in charge period we still don't have one such got it number again 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate not for spectators uh, do not wait till last minute if you think you have suggestions thoughts what's been shared thus far if you do know of such a mythical institution and or did they have like fortune 500 companies in your high school I said I was trying to go low like you know maybe they had some of the fast food joints but I don't know did Bill Gates come to your high school try to recruit you Tim Cook I don't know a place that you might yeah I would like to work there for 25 years yeah that sounds awesome I don't remember that maybe I wasn't paying attention you know going through school I didn't pay attention to all the goodies and resources that they had for us but I don't remember that I remember the army folks military I remember all of that having to stage uh I said she used the meta or simile I guess specifically bees to honey I remember that ooh what are you doing ooh gosh ooh you got plans ooh ooh, ooh. I remember that in great detail uh, we had uh, one of our listeners 
wrote in, we're talking about Philadelphia, that's where they were doing the smash and grab at the uh, Apple store and the Lulu mom. One of our listeners wrote in, that is uh, her former stomping grounds, uh, Fresh Princess of Philly. Uh, she wrote in, I played the segment on Move last week, talking about the great Sue Africa and all the rest. Uh, she wrote in a few things about the Saturday program. Uh, they are in my area of life experience and professional expertise. Move, I always knew them to be a cult growing up. Apparently a number of uh, folks in Philadelphia, they did know that from the beginning. Maybe they knew about Sue Africa. I watched the Move Fire and recall being, oh, she means like the real thing, like May 1985. Uh, I watched the Move Fire and recall being terrified that the fire would reach our neighborhood, which was nowhere near southwest Philadelphia. I grew up in Mount Airy. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let the MFR burn was that is that connected to philadelphia and the move fire i never thought it was but i don't know is it it's 50 years of hip-hop like they maybe they can explain that phrase maybe they've just been saying it and all but i mean hmm, i have to dig on that does anybody has free time to look yes what is the history of that uh, hip hop phrasing jingle. I don't know what you that, that's Negro culture, right? We should at least know that one. Uh, met Pam Africa. She was the host of a Black Power spoken word night that was hosted at St. Joseph's University in 2001, shortly after 9 11. Uh, Abu Ghraib. Mm. The Flyers had a Black Panther on the front. My bestie and I were in charge of the snack table. The school police shut the event down early due to safety concerns, of course. Prior to my bestie and his family moving to the Germantown area of Philadelphia, they lived on the same street as the Move people. The sentiments of the neighbors and residents near the Move house, which were featured in the PBS Move documentary, were spot on per my friend. It was one of the reasons his family moved. That PBS documentary uh, by Dr. Jason Oster, white man, he was the guest on the cows, I think 2014, maybe 15. Uh... He Sue Africa is in that uh, or depends on which version you watch uh, the shorter edited version she is not in the longer unedited version or still edited but the longer version she is in briefly uh, but he was on the program way back then I think it's called let the fire burn I think it's what it's called let the fire burn go with that one anyway that's the one that uh, she's talking about and they do feature a number uh, they feature a lot of archival footage I think that's a great documentary a lot of great information but they feature uh, a lot of black residents who lived in the area where the move house were at the time or before the time of the fire and there are many many black people who are like man these folks are not counter racists freedom fighters that old no count Sue Africa and the rest of these folks are no count terrorists and blah, 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 and they're up on the house like it was lots and lots of black homeowners in Philadelphia who were not fans of or happy about move at all let the fire burn documentary uh, let's see other folks uh, you have commentary observations questions to share let's see give folks about two minutes see if they are all satisfied for the day I did look for Grace Clay that's the 16 year old she was on the uh, or is on the volleyball team in Idaho with her uh, suspected racist 
teammates and they terrorized her and all the rest of it. Uh, it looks like she may indeed have a white parent, which I guess thinking on this, oh yeah, they're in Idaho. They do not exactly have tons of black people in Idaho. So I guess, yeah, maybe not that, not that shocking, but yes, looks like Lauren was correct on that when she does have a white mother who was the one saying, oh man, it's just nothing I could do about that. Now, if it was a black parent, I wouldn't say that. I think, yeah, that's probably about, I guess, get him out of the school. I don't know, but yeah. White parent, like, oh man, we've had read tons of books about like white parents know how to advocate. Have that coming up soon. White woman wrote a whole dissertation about that. Like, man, I'm a white woman. I know how to go up here and argue for my, you did what, what, uh, Irie said cyber bullying my child permanent record bam get that on everybody's permanent record get my attorney up here and boom 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 they know how to advocate for white children grace clay non-white victim of white supremacy that's kind of a tragic double whammy like oh you have to go through all that and you have a race soldier parent there there so oh oh and we've, we've heard a number of those where it's some non-white child and they got a white parent who's, yeah, it's terrible. I don't know what to do. What does it mean to be classified as white? Tragic arrangements. Big no-no. Uh, last minute, folks have anything else they want to share. Do not wait. Uh, do not wait. Give folks about 60 seconds. See if they have anything else uh, to include. We should be here on uh, Monday, Monday, or, oh God, early Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, 11 a.m. Pacific. Hopefully, it will be worthy of my time and energy first and foremost because, man, I am no fan of the early broadcast. Woof. Irie, did you have commentary? Yes. I'm glad you said gave last minute uh, opportunity. So I was trying to get some information about the tsunami in Libya, and I pulled up an article. I found an article about a tsunami in Peru last year in January, where they said something about. Um, it says on Saturday the National Tsunami Warning Center. Uh, boss, whatever his name said, there was no tsunami warning in the country and that there was no need to alarm the population. And that just made me like, I I was taken aback a little bit because I was reminded about what they said in Maui. Not that it was a tsunami. It's just people using discretion to say whether or not an alarm should be set off. And I don't know. That just interests me. And Peru, I do believe, is a non-white um, country, mostly. Um, I think so. Yeah, that's all I want to say. Just people deciding that they're not going to alert people to danger. This is not um, the the second. It's the second time that I know of in recent history, the past two years. And that's all. I wasn't even aware of the uh, tsunami in uh, Peru. That happened, I believe, 2022. Uh, I wasn't even 
aware of that, but that is a lot of non-white people, Spanish-speaking uh, area of the world. And they did say that it wasn't a tsunami, but that the people in Maui, Hawaii, that they were not given proper uh, notification that there was a wildfire uh, warning that this could be a lethal event and that they would need to evacuate or take, you know, whatever safety precautions. That was a big part of uh, what they said about those big fires that happened over uh, the summer. Uh, and that also would be a lot of non-white people uh, where they don't get, you know, proper advanced safety. Really, all we're talking about at the end of the day, their safety is not valued, prioritized worldwide. But yeah, I didn't even know about the situation in Peru. I know right, like as in today, like right now, I know they're having uh, flooding in the New York area. I think it's New York and New Jersey where the subway was shut down for quite a bit of time. And they had, uh, it's not funny, they had articles on the New York Times giving uh, suggestions on uh, clearing your basement of water from all of this. So definitely folks in the New York area hope everybody is uh, safe got advanced warning uh, they even said it was kind of a surprise thing like they didn't know it was going to be all this but I think they said Governor Hochul uh, somewhat similar I think to what Irie was saying earlier uh, in that South Louisiana might not be here they're talking about so called climate disruption and everything that white people have done uh, in destroying the planet like oh man is this you know Man, they got coastal erosion and all the rest of it and having these bad storms and everything else and sea level rising. And, oh, man, this could be a big problem. Governor Hochul said the same thing uh, in New York. Like, oh, man, it looks like we have messed up the pl- uh, climate to some degree or at minimum there's a change. Might have more of these types of storms. Might have to prepare. They even included that. They were talking about the vouchers for energy assistance in Illinois that was included there too having more extremes on both ends having more extreme weather events during the cold season when they have these ridiculous snowstorms I think Buffalo had two last year they had six literally six feet of snow and then the extreme weather events in the summertime too you have to have the AC and all the rest of you could die in 110 degree heat that is for sure something to you know think on as we try and get this problem solved ASAP uh, in the weather impact of all of this particularly on non-white people and then do they have the information and resources to adequately adequately respond to these sort of weather events that would also be something serious to be you know thinking about talking about organizing about as a survival unit so called family at least in my view we talked about all that before making sure you have energy uh, your energy situation together alternative power goes out or whatever the case flooding especially if you're in an area where they haven't had those sorts of uh, massive floods and the whole basement is drowned and everything else like yee that might be something yes let me see that New York Times article how do you do to prepare for all of this and man lots to consider Uh, everyone satisfied we get everybody assume everyone is good again we should be here on Monday unfortunately early but uh, and then we'll fill out the remainder of the week as we proceed Uh, we will get the neutralizing workplace racism broadcast from Friday I was a little tardy in getting it uploaded so 
double check and both this broadcast and yesterday's neutralizing workplace racism should be available much obliged uh, folks for tuning in for their uh, Saturday evening hopefully worthy of your time and energy sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no gossiping no name calling no throwaway offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned